0: You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. On today's episode, I'll be talking with software engineer Tessa Kelly and product designer Ben Dansby about interactive style guides. Software Unscripted is sponsored by my employer, no Red, Ink. No Red Ink makes software for English teachers, and we're on a mission to help all students harness the power of the written word. We're also hiring, so the next time you're thinking about a change, take a look at noredinkcom slash jobs. And now, interactive style guides. All right. Today, we have with us Tessa Kelly and Ben Dansby. Why don't you introduce yourselves?
1: Hi, I'm Tessa. I'm an engineer at Inc. where I've worked for about six years, uh, and I live in the San Diego area.
2: Hello, I'm Ben. I'm a designer at Inc. I've worked at Noradink for about five years, and I am in San Francisco because the Noradink office used to be in San Francisco before it died.
0: (laughs) Nice. All right, so let's kick off our discussion about uh, collaborative style guides by talking about just sort of the, the problem that they solve. So how do we, you know, a lot of companies do this differently. How, how do we do collaboration between design and developers to make a new feature at NoRedInk?
2: It's an ongoing conversation. Officially, I guess the rubber might meet the road with what we call the product spec. And uh, that's where, after all the design has been done, a designer like myself puts down on paper exactly what we want a given teacher to do and how it should work as well as what it should look like. And then we, uh, go from there in terms of breaking that down and uh, into how we might implement it technically.
0: Cool. Okay. So, so the design perspective is like, let's figure out how to take this general idea of something that sounds like a good idea for students and teachers uh, or district administrators as the case may be. And, Let's figure out how to turn it into something more specific. Yep. Cool. Okay, so Tessa, then engineering, you know, enters the conversation and starts collaborating. How?
1: Yeah, generally we say, ah, that sounds too hard. Are you sure? Are you sure? <laughs> and then we have some rounds of going back and forth on thinking through possibly alternate approaches that might be easier, talking about the specifics of the design, making sure that everyone has a full and deep understanding a lot of the time in working with Ben, what ends up happening is I say, but what about this? And then Ben says, clearly you didn't read the whole thing (laughs) because it says what to do in the spec. I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, okay, you're right. Yeah, and then after we've done the product kickoff, after everyone has a deep understanding of the feature and we've got stories in place, we will... You know, do the code, make PRs. Uh, we always tag design on PRs that make visual changes, and get their feedback on whether we've actually adhered to the spec successfully. One thing I've noticed in the course of being an engineer is that my eye is not as good as the designer's eye for like the pixel perfect. I'll be like, "It's perfect," and it's like, "Right, it's it's not it's not perfect yet." <laughs> Uh, so then we'll fix things. And then sometimes we'll pair on on features if there's like an animation, say, and we're looking for a particular feel. That's something that can be really helpful to pair on so we can experiment a little bit. Yeah. And then uh, also sometimes for like a hack day or for an admin tool, we'll follow a, a different general new feature strategy where an engineer will try something and then realize huh, this works, but it's not very usable. And then we'll say, Ben, help. And then he will help.
0: Gotcha. So, you know, some people might hear that and think like, wow, that sounds like super strict waterfall. It's like you have stage one, build the spec, stage two, implement the spec, done. But it sounds like actually what you mentioned at the end there kind of suggests that it's actually a lot more iterative than that. It's like, this is the sort of the starting point. But then once you implement it, inevitably along the way, you know, as we've learned over the years in software, you know, things uh, unplanned things happen, and then you need to iterate. So let's talk about that a little bit. How does how does that interaction go?
2: Well, I mean, things come up all the time. It's definitely not like throwing a, a ninety page manual over the wall and and uh, then getting back a <laughs> then getting back a, a feature six months later. Like like PR or like uh like PR, like Tessa said, just like looking at PRs, we can make adjustments on the fly if we notice something amiss and it's not just about pixel perfect sometimes i don't think i think pixel perfect is is a uh, is not a goal that you can ever achieve and it's not really a worthy goal because you know websites and browsers and and everything are, is very is variable and and, and, uh, and so you're never going to get it perfect but the point is just to make it if it can look nice without looking exactly like what was in the mockups that's fine yeah like uh an engineer might implement a feature, notice along the way that, hey, actually, when I do it this way, it leads to this usability problem that you didn't anticipate while you're designing because you're designing in the abstract, and I'm actually building it. And so we will come up with a, a fix for that. Or an engineer might notice or might realize that if we implement it this, this way, it's a lot easier and, and the code is more maintainable. Is it... Is it worse? Is it worse UX-wise in the way you originally designed it, Ben? Or could we do it this way, and we'll have a conversation about that? It's not a linear path towards a fixed point.
0: Okay, cool. So, all right. So, with that context in mind, let's talk about style guides. So, what is the problem that style guides solve in this sort of situation? I mean, we, it sounds like we've we got a system. You know, it works out uh, pretty straightforwardly. You got an initial sort of planning stage. You know, the initial design. Start implementing it. There's bumps in the road, collaborate to figure out how to, you know, work around those bumps and balance all the trade-offs. Why have a style guide at all? Like why why do we have one?
1: I think one of the biggest benefits from my perspective is that it gives us a clear shared language between eng design, product, everybody else at the company around what components are available, what colors are available. It's really helpful when looking at a spec uh, to be able to say clearly this should be gray 45 say it's just really straightforward
0: i love gray 45 that's that's one of my favorite grays
1: you know it's it's not my favorite color in the style guide but
0: (laughs) okay so okay so there's there's a sort of a, a shared language for things like colors and like different components and stuff like that so it seems like the you know the amount of time it would take us to put together a whole style guide. Couldn't we have just put together a little uh, paper doc, or even just like a just a list of like here's the colors, here's what they refer to, and here's a this is a dropdown. You know, y'all know what that is. Why why go to all the work of making an entire style guide? Or actually, maybe we should you know for for those listening, talk about like what what's actually in the style guide. Like what is different from a style guide versus just like a you know like a markdown file saying by the way, that these are the colors we use.
1: Well, we did have a a style guide that was describing the features as desired rather than showcasing the components that are actually available. And that was really helpful as well. And that also helped lead to a shared vocabulary. I don't know, Ben, if you want to speak more to the Zeppelin style guide.
2: Yeah. So before we really had uh, had designers at the company
0: Oh, I remember we, those days. They were not good well, days.
2: You, let's say once we got designers at the company, <laughs> those designers started collaborating and coming up with a kind of unified visual theme for the site. And as we did so, we started, you know, designing new components and restraining existing components to to match that theme. And so we created a uh, a style guide and the uh, the design application Sketch. Which we then exported to an application called Zeppelin, which allows uh, engineers to look at visual specs. And so that was a way of kind of establishing this is where we want to go. This is our vision for, for what the site will look like. Here's all the things you need to know engineers to implement it. And so that, that served as a, a kind of guiding, guiding post, guide for, for the eventual real style guide, so to speak, the one that lived, lives in code now and we actually deleted that old zeppelin style guide because we graduated past it we now have a living a living style guide that is the canonical source of truth for what our site should look like and it's also i guess maybe worth distinguishing between the style guide which is you know basically just a page with a bunch of stuff listed versus the actual components that comprise the style guide and that's like the the most important part having those components that are Decoupled from any any specific feature that you can then reuse over and over, like uh, Richard said, like we could just have a a doc with all those listed and and point them out as long as those components are in code and can be referred to. That's fine. The style guide is just kind of a, a reference uh, or an index for the actual components.
0: Gotcha. Okay. So so what's the difference then, like in terms of like implementation? So let's say that I had a little you know, index reference that just listed them all. And I wanted to get to, you know, what we now have, where it's like a living style guide, like you said, been living in the code. What's the gap there? Like, what's the difference? Is it just a matter of, oh, well, we just implement a bunch of reusable things in code and then call it a day? Or is there some extra step to get that, like to be integrated into the style guide such that we feel it's now sort of a living thing?
1: I think the key step is showcasing generic examples of each of those components
0: so outside so we say generic do you just mean like outside the context of a particular page
1: yes or outside the context that? of a particular page and displaying as many states that the component can be in as possible
0: interesting so uh why yeah walk me through that as many different states as possible that it can be in like how does that how does that translate in practice to like you know, the experience of using the style guide.
1: Using the style guide, if everything goes well, it should be really easy to see for a button, say the loading state, the error state, the all is good state the are you sure you want to do this state? Probably this is destructive in some way. Are you sure? Are you sure? Like every, (laughs) every state that like the teensiest little component can be in should be, easy to access, every layout option should be easy to access. It's challenging to build a strong component example because you really have to think about all of the ways that the component will be used. And that's something that the original Zeppelin guide was really helpful in laying out. So the design team decided and showed how every one of those states should be. And then the component library example proves to some degree to the to the viewer that the component is doing what it's supposed to be doing.
2: That's that's one huge advantage of having like an actual HTML page with live components on it versus again like a a paper doc with with just screenshots or whatever pointing pointing to the components. If you have the the live page, you can have live examples and you can, you know, see what it looks like when you hover over things or uh, even better, you can adjust. You can uh, we have all these different pickers and sliders and, and menus to adjust various states of of the components. And I think those may be even auto-generated based on on the Elm code. I'm not quite sure, but it's it's a way of of playing around with things and and viewing all the, all the all the possibilities. And so it's 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 dynamic.
1: The pickers and sliders and dropdowns aren't auto-generated, but they are really pretty straightforward to set up. Thanks to Aaron Vanderhaar's Elm Debug Controls library, you can pretty easily set up these neat state pickers that are displayed in kind of a record format way. So it's obvious that you're describing the API of the component.
0: Okay, cool. So... So I'm curious how each of you use the style guide differently. Like presumably there's some overlap between how engineers and designers use it, but also some differences. So I'm kind of curious to just I don't know, hear from each of your perspectives. Like, you know, if you think about like the most often ways, the most common ways that you find yourselves using it, what are those?
2: Both myself and and our other designer, Stacey, we rely on it very heavily to describe visually. Well, one, we we use it, we use the, the non living style guide to do our design so we still we still have our components in our design programs until we we build our designs from these from these lego blocks we you know we when we need to design a new new kind of structure or component we do but our first course of action our first recourse is our existing components and so we attempt to construct the designs we need from these components and then when it comes time to to build what what we've designed it's we we use a style guide uh, by referencing these components and telling the engineers that they can use this that or the other component so that they know they don't have to write CSS or reinvent the wheel or whatever they can just plug these things in.
1: After designers after Ben or Stacy have said this is the component that should be used here. Um, the style guide is one of the places that I would go to understand the API, to understand how to use the component. I'd use the Elm package website as well to to see the the type annotations and the, read the docs. But to really see the component in action, the style guide is a great place to go. So if the designer says use this button. I might still want to play with the layout options on the style guide and see, do I want an exact width? Do I want to fill the container? How do I want this button to to act in practice? I would reference the style guide to deepen my understanding on that. And then the style guide is also a great place to go to see how a component should operate if it's not being impacted by years of inherited legacy c- css
0: <laughs> we've definitely
1: got some some tangled css on some of our older pages that can have unexpected styles applied and sometimes it's helpful if there's bug or something strange happening to understand whether the problem is the component itself like maybe there's a bug in the component or if the problem is somewhere else in the CSS or somewhere else on the page, it's just really helpful to have that like minimal context example to go to.
0: So this is like older pages that had global CSS that would affect everything on the page.
2: Mm-hmm. Yep. I keep waiting for our signup page to not be a mix of, of Elm code and SAS because I'm like... It's- it's a, it's a sign-up page. It's super high-frequency use. It's, it's, surely it's going to be refactored multiple times until it's It's pure Elm. But no, still a mixture, and and the error messages still appear slightly strange because of the interfering SAS.
1: Nobody go look at those. <laughs> I'm just kidding.
0: <laughs> yeah, I wonder how old that code is, that SAS code. Because we started using Elm in 2015, but we still had, at that time, I think we still had some, like, we were still doing a mix of Elm and, like, our previous JavaScript and Ruby-type stuff. Hmm. Well, pretty we, old, we kept, I
2: guess. We kept, u- we kept using SAS with Elm for a while, too, before we moved to Elm CSS. Oh, that's right.
0: Yeah. hmm Yeah.
1: And then, actually, not to air all of our secrets, but I'm pretty sure... That there's, there's no still- database passwords. That's <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure that there's still Bootstrap styles at the very, very, very bottom of everything.
0: That oh. I totally buy that. I mean, when I joined the company in 2013, we didn't use React yet. It was all jQuery and Bootstrap and SAS. And there was some corner of the code base that used Angular, but I don't even remember what it was anymore.
1: It's still um, there. It's content creation. <laughs> yeah.
0: Okay. Oh, yeah. So internal admin stuff.
2: I just had to fix, I had to fix, uh, or I I made Michael Glass fix uh, a jQuery bug today.
0: (laughs) That's impressive since he's on parental leave. (laughs) (laughs) So that's an interesting topic, too. Is just, I mean, maybe it's a little bit tangential to style guides, but what the heck? This is unscripted. So let's just talk a little bit about like evolving styles over time, because I know that does kind of overlap with style guides a little bit. Obviously, what we're talking about here is legacy code. Legacy CSS has the particularly unfortunate side effect, pun retroactively intended, of often being done in sort of a global way where you have these styles that are affecting everything on the page, even things that you would ideally prefer to be sort of isolated and modular like in a style guide. What do you see as like the effective ways to like mitigate that or transition away from that like is, is there anything to be done about that other than just rewriting it in a more modular way where you just don't use global styles like that anymore maybe there isn't
2: <laughs> namespaces
0: namespaces can you elaborate
2: uh, just you know be be super specific about you can you can refactor old sass by just being more specific
0: oh like with the selectors
2: yeah yeah
0: mm, yeah Good point. Although, of course, then there's always a risk of a regression, right? If something was accidentally depending on the less specific version, <laughs> yep. yep. which I, you know, I guess is part and parcel of why we don't want to do global styles.
1: I do think that global styles potentially, if you're keeping everything up to date,
0: Uh-oh, can mean like that you. Going.
1: <laughs> well, if, <laughs> if you keep everything up to date and have a consistent look and feel from the start, and shared components that you maintain from the start. I think that having the global styles can mean that you can refresh your your brand's look and feel more, more seamlessly. Like if all of a sudden you want all of the button colors to be slightly different, with a global style, you can make that happen. With how we're doing things now, you would have to make a color change in in many different places because of how we're handling versioning on our component library.
0: That's a good point. well, let's talk about versioning a little bit because I think that's something that I wouldn't have guessed we would have gotten as heavily into as we have back in the you know 2013 2014 days. So when you say versioning, let's be a little bit more specific and also at the same time I I, I had a sort of mental note to you mentioned Elm packages in passing previously and I know you're referring to, but I, I suspect a lot of people who are listening might not, know what you meant when you said like the elm package website as it pertains to our style guide and maybe you could just talk a little bit about like how our how we do like reuse in our front end since we use elm instead of javascript
1: style guide is an example app for the no Writing UI package so that's the first place that versioning comes into play because no reading qi is a published package it has to adhere to the versions that the elm package site requires the so, semantic versioning, yeah. Mm-hmm. We have to follow, we have to make releases, we have to install the component after it's released. Past that, we also version our components. We don't version our examples. We generally update our examples in the style guide to the most recent version of the component. And there's some there's some trade-offs there. But the central idea is that like if we have a button component, we might have Nri UI. Button V1. And then we might have another NRI UI button V2 module. And both of those modules would be available from the NORATINK UI package based on the numbers. We want our neuratink developers to use NRIUI button v2 and to move off of NRI UI button v1. With anything that requires like work to maintain and Keeping up, to, keeping up to date with things, it's definitely not always true that we're all the way up to date, which is why I said that it might be harder for us to do a refresh of colors, say, just because we have these older versions of components that are still in use on the site.
0: So why do we do that to ourselves? Why don't we just... If I were in charge of everything, I would simply... Always use the latest version of everything. Why why ever have V1, V2 coexisting in the same code base? Why don't we just force everyone to upgrade to V2 as soon as V2 comes out?
1: I think that if we forced everyone to upgrade to the newest version, it would make updates to NoRidinQ UI pretty impossible. And you might end up blocked on getting a small fix or improvement into the code base because you have to update 20 uses of the modal component after the API has changed. If you require everyone to upgrade immediately to the latest version, you're forcing work on other teams at the company and you're also requiring that all that work go out at once. You can't do it one small step at a time. If I have NRIUI modal v1 and nri Ui modal v2, it might take me... A couple of weeks to get everything up to date. It might take me some time to migrate from modal V1 to modal V2, but I don't end up with like a giant monster PR that is trying to do all those 20 uses. I've got one PR for the first use, another PR for the second use, and I can go carefully and slowly and making safe changes. So essentially, why don't we just do it the other way? Risk aversion (laughs) or maybe risk mitigation.
0: Yeah, and like wanting to do things more incrementally. So Ben, I'm really curious to hear the sort of design perspective on this. Like, how do you feel about the versioning system? Is that like, you know, in your ideal world, is that how we would do things? Or is there, I don't know, some way we could improve on that that would make things nicer from the design perspective? Or what do you think?
2: Well, I mean, ideally, yeah, there would not be, or there not be versions or or if there was a new version, it would all use, everything would use the new version immediately. I guess, it, I don't know anything about API design or whatever, but if there was a change a change in, in the API for, let's say, the modal, ideally, it would be backwards compatible. And so you could just instantly update the existing modals. And so you wouldn't have to worry about keeping keeping the old components around. One thing we do on the, for some of our, well, it's hard to extract some of this because we have, we actually have two style guides, one which is in our, our monolith and the other which is in the public repo. I think what this is what we do for our inputs, like uh, text inputs. I think we have a set of styles that is, in, that is independent of our actual any any given input, so you know there's there's text inputs, there's password inputs, we have date inputs, we have autocomplete inputs, and all those share the same styles. And I'm not sure how that's implemented, but the same styles show up both in the monolith and in the and in the UI. So that's really nice because even if we, you know, if we want to if we want to globally change these the the input styles we can do that and we don't have to worry about multiple versions or, or whatever and so at least on the style like it would be nice uh, if, let's say if we updated the modal component to v2 then at least it would be nice if the styles were independent of that api change or whatever of course it, styles are everything like if if we update upgrade the the modal to you know be more accessible adding better keyboard support then it would be nice if every modal got that as well but styles are at least at least one thing maybe that you could extract and and not have dependent on on the versions
1: i think that our api design has improved possibly not possibly excluding modal but i think our api design in general has improved for reusable components so that they are more likely to be backwards compatible Our earliest versions of the button component, they tended to take a record configuration or multiple records of configuration, which meant that any additional state, any additional look or feel would mean updating every single button on the site. And as you can imagine, we have a lot of buttons and our our newer versions of the button component of many of our components take a list of attributes instead and those attributes are constructed you're not you're not operating directly on the union type constructor that defines those attributes which does give you more room for backwards compatibility in a lot of cases since your button is going to have like default behavior and then you're adding these additional attributes as a list.
2: Yeah, we definitely uh, we definitely have a lot less churn in the versions than we did early on in the style guide both for those engineering things you just said which I definitely understood just because you know they're more mature now. We've we've figured things out a lot more and so we we have to there's there's less to to, to change. They're more stable.
0: Okay, so here's a question. Tessa, earlier you you gave the example of, let's say that we wanted to make a color change across the whole site, Uh, like some some big theme thing. We've decided like the Noradink blue that we're using, we want to make it a different blue. In the global CSS styles world, you make that change in one place and it's instantly updated everywhere. But you mentioned that like, since we have things versioned like this, it might not happen everywhere. But it occurs to me that, I mean, we could. Like we have these things in different modules, but they could all, you know, import a common sort of global styles module that has like no red ink blue is this and if we change it in one place it gets changed everywhere or you know we want to swap out gray 45 which as we all know is the most majestic shade of gray and we we want to change it to you know gray 47 or something so I guess what I'd be wondering is is there a reason we don't do that like we don't you know we need we may need to have things versioned separately for API compatibility concerns but maybe not necessarily for you know sharing colors is there i don't know any reason we couldn't do that
1: well our our colors are defined in the style guide so we could say that gray 45 is now like a blue color but um the the name gray 45 has the 45 is based on the saturation is that correct Mm -hmm. it's not a Generic name that refers to some gray. Gray 45 means specifically a gray. So I think maybe if we changed our color names to be more about how they were used, like I think we have some colors that are like highlighter, yellow, dark, highlighter, yellow, light, that kind of color name, or like if we changed it to highlighter to dark. I think those, it would be more reasonable to change the underlying color everywhere to do a, a refresh. But I wouldn't want to change cyan some number to cyan some other number, since then the variable name wouldn't, wouldn't be accurate anymore.
0: So I've heard an argument that you should name things Based on their sort of stylistic function rather than their visual appearance, like primary and secondary or accent or this or that, as opposed to actually using the color names. I don't know, Ben, what do you think about that?
2: <laughs> no, I think that's that's a good idea. The, na- the names were a, a first draft that then we never revised. So, yeah, definitely like there's no reason that the 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 actual saturations of the grays have to be in there I was just trying to distinguish between grays and that's what I came up with we do have some so like like Tessa said like in our we have like names like azure and uh and cornflower and so we do have some some degree of leniency there in and how we can adjust colors because they're not specific and even if we change gray 45 maybe if we change that to 50% saturation, it doesn't matter. It's just a name at this point. So.
0: <laughs> sure. And it's also not like, I mean, if you want to rename something in your Elm code, like it's going to touch all the, the diff will be very large in the PR, but it's not going to actually like break stuff. It's right, it's, right, right. it's a type check yeah, language.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah, totally. At some point we implemented, um, I don't think, I don't know if we still have it, but in our CI suite, we had, had a thing where it runs an accessibility check to see if colors are contrasty enough. We determined that our Azure, when it was on some certain background, didn't quite meet the AA standards, and so just changed like one one hex value in the Azure hex code to just make it slightly darker so CI would pass, and so we updated Azure to be that new color, and it was global across every component, across the whole style guide, so that was great. And I, st- I still think of it as 146 AFF, and that's that's what I still use, as I never updated it locally, but but actually on the site where users are using it and where they will actually have to meet accessibility standards, it's, it's, it's right there.
0: Plus, as everybody knows, if you make Azure slightly darker, it becomes Sapphire, so I don't know how we could not have changed the name by now, but <laughs> that's that aside, going along with the theme of like, versioning and changes and stuff like that. Let's talk about visual regressions a little bit and sort of like how those interact with style guides. Cause I have to imagine there's sometimes where like, Ben, you come up with a, a new design. Like you want to have a new, I don't know, variation on a button. It's like a new fancy button that flips upside down or something when you click it. Maybe that's a bad example cause that'd be animation. But I don't know, maybe the, one of the corners is, has a little uh, badge on it. Like a, one of those little circular annoying notification badges. I don't know why I'm like making you be the villain of making annoying notification. Badges, used, but just let's used, just go with we used it. Used to
2: have that and the old style guy, We used to have that.
0: Well, let's speak no more of that. So, <laughs> <laughs> but let's say we needed to add something like that, where it's it's sort of like it's it's taking something that we currently use in a lot of places, and we're potentially adding something new that sort of pokes out the side of it and could overlap with other you know other elements that are on the page, um, if they were you know tightly packed enough. So I guess that would be an, an example of where. I mean, would we want to do a new, you know, button V three or something like that, even if the if the API could have been backwards compatible from a code perspective, just to avoid having to go back and like test everything for visual regressions again? Or is that something where, you know, we're 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 just not worried about it as long as it sort of uh looks okay in the style guide, it's probably gonna be okay in the app and we can just make the code change and run with it?
2: Yeah, it's it's kind of a judgment call. Sometimes you you make a visual change uh, to a component, and, you're, and you just feel like there's there's no possible way this could this could mess things up, and so you push it and uh, you don't worry too much. But yeah, if you're if you're like changing a component such that it has different dim, d- different dimensions or has some additional element within it, you might want to consider creating a new component based off of it, or yeah, doing doing a version just so you can be a little bit more cautious about about rolling it out.
1: And with that specific example of adding a little notification bubble, I think we would also probably talk about whether the notification bubble would only ever appear on clickable, like on what kinds of things the notification bubble might appear on. Because it could be that the notification bubble itself is a concept that could be generalized and might be relevant to more than just a button, we have a button component and that looks like a button. It's got the rounded edges and it's a rectangle and it's often got some fill, like background color. But we've also got clickable SVGs, which are UI icons, like maybe a little save button looking thing, little save icon, little floppy disk icon that would appear by itself as a button with alt text. We have clickable text, which is also either a button or a link, depending on the the functionality of the element, but it it doesn't have a border. It doesn't have fill. It's It looks visually more like an anchor tag would by default. So I think something that I would consider is not trying to extend an existing component, but thinking about whether the, change that I'm making is something that needs to be able to stand on its own or would, would need to be able to compose with other elements like like a tooltip say our tooltip component composes somewhat clunkily but it composes with anything that might be clickable
0: sure so uh, on a related topic like Ben you mentioned like you know in CI we have like accessibility checks that run on this and I know there's like you know especially with like uh, storybook and stuff like that there's uh, a lot of talk about sort of like building and testing you know shared things in isolation as opposed to, you know, always doing them in the context of a particular page or something like that. So let's talk about that a little bit in terms of the trade-offs between developing something sort of and and testing it in isolation, you know, to be put it in the style guide and then, you know, used in other pages versus the other way around of like taking something that's initially designed sort of special case to be used for the first time in this one page. And then later, maybe you Pull it out and say, "Okay, let's actually move it into no UI. Put it in the style guide, add examples, and maybe move tests into there too." I don't know. What do you What do you all think are the trade offs between you know starting with uh, doing it sort of style guide first, or versus doing it in a page first and then extracting it later?
2: Yeah, we uh, we actually had kind of a, a related discussion uh, in a meeting. Tessa and I did a few minutes ago about the trade off of. Designing for designing and and coding for the feature versus just doing the here and and the here and now, and definitely in our style guides, we have definitely gone both ways at times. Our style guide actually just did a PR recently to remove a bunch of stuff that we that was that had been put in the style guide, um, but had never actually been used beyond the one page that it it was used on, so it it was. Extracted up front or or coded to be a a component from the very start. So I think that can lead to clutter. Of course, you don't need just because you design something, just because you code something so that it's an independent component doesn't mean you need to put it in the style guide. So, you know, out of sight, out of mind, you know, doesn't really matter to me as a designer uh, whether it's how it's uh, uh, structured within the, the code base. A style guide index, I think, should be primarily for the things that are used across the site and that we know we we will, we will reuse across the site. And I wouldn't want uh, engineering to go through the effort of of modularizing everything up front. So from my perspective, I think it's fine to wait until you know you're going to need it before going going through the effort. But that does require a communication amongst designers and engineers to like realize, oh, we actually did something sim- similar like this in the past. Sh- shall we now extract that and reuse it?
0: Now, I've heard the the flip side of that. I've, I've heard an argument made against that. Like, I, again, I'll bring up Storybook as, as saying like, well, actually, it's better to design things in isolation and to develop them in isolation, test them in isolation, and then also to have like documentation and stuff like that. Or, or, or at least like maybe not 100% of the time, but you know maybe closer to the default. I don't know. It do you think there's merit to that or is that, you know, different from your experience?
2: Yeah, I'm not I'm not a big fan of designing things in isolation. I don't really know what I'd have to, re- to read the merits of, of that in relation to the style guides, but you know, if you're if you're making an application from scratch, you definitely know that you're going to need a certain number of components. Like you know you're going to need buttons and and radio buttons and, and so forth and so I think it's fine to like say yes these are our components but you know if you're developing a peer review feature and you have a module that shows feedback summaries from from the peer review I think it's fine to just say this is a peer review feature and you don't need to consider that you don't need to consider that to be a, a universal component
1: I think this gets to some of the tension with having a a shared style guide that there are many stakeholders in and many consumers of. From my perspective, it's easier to develop quality components in isolation because you have to think carefully about the API or else you won't be able to actually show the different examples that you want to show. And because for something like peer review, where because you're talking about peers, there's inherently state from multiple users. It's easier in a style guide environment where you're hard coding a lot of things or setting defaults for a lot of things. You don't have to click through to get to the, to the context. Like the, the context-free nature of the style guide can be really helpful, especially when there's complicated state. So I I do see a lot of value in developing the components in isolation. Some of the time, even if they're not actually intended for reuse, but then that does lead to clutter. And it's like, why is this here? This isn't reused. Why did nobody cares about this component anymore? Nobody's touching it, but then it will be useful as soon as somebody wants to change it.
0: Mm -hmm. Gotcha.
2: So Maybe maybe we need three style goods.
1: (laughs) Have you thought about four though? I really like the, the balance of four. Four. Five,
2: four.
0: <laughs> four is better. That's just math. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So so let's talk about some things we would sort of change about our current system if we could. Like if we just had a magic wand and we could just be like, bah, now now this is different about how we do style guides or what are some things we would we would like to change? Like ways we could potentially improve what we've already got.
1: We have a tool in the style guide that helps you to preview the no writing qi package if it were published in our monolith code base, the tooling doesn't work particularly consistently since it's messing with Elm packages that are installed and we've got kind of a complicated build system with some caching. I would love to have a a tooling that's really consistent and excellent for doing a test install of an unpublished package.
0: Okay, so kind of a... Yeah, a little bit of like inside baseball there, I guess, but I, I, I take your point.
1: Well, I think it would be useful for for other people as well. I don't think it's only for Noradink UI. I think if you have a package that you're thinking about publishing and you have an app that uses that other package, it's nice to be able to to run a test without needing to maintain all of your examples within the published package. Because probably if you've made something, You've made it for a purpose, and the example code that's useful for other potential users of that code is probably intentionally simple, and you might still want to test your fancy-pants package in a more full-fledged context.
0: That's fair.
2: I would like our uh, components in NervoDynq UI to be merged back into our monolith so that we have one consolidated list of components both just for convenience and, and comprehensiveness sake, and also so that when we update our components, we don't have to then merge in Neuronic UI into the monolith to get, those, to get those updates. So that's like my number one pet peeve about, about our style guide system.
0: So sort but of the, we, the legacy legacy code that hasn't been merged into the preferred way of doing things.
2: No, it's it's not... <laughs> The legacy is is is, a, is my preferred way of doing things. Uh-huh. We we created NeuroDeck UI because we thought we were going to reuse components across multiple applications, but that didn't pan out. But then we just kept NeuroDeck UI and kept adding stuff to it. But then we also were adding stuff to the original style guide as well because we didn't we didn't fully extract everything into Neuro UI. So I just want a unification and I would def- I would urge towards the unification on the monolith side so that way we don't have to do never next UI updates version version bumps or whatever so that'd be great and then this is this maybe is is a, is a project I need to need to do myself to get other people excited about it but you know our and I've I've done a few tweaks here and there but our style guide just generally isn't very stylish
0: <laughs>
2: it's not it's not that fun to look at it doesn't really portray our our brand and our components in the best light
0: it doesn't um, pop so. is that am i doing that right exactly okay
2: so yeah a bit more pizzazz a bit more pop would be nice <laughs> it'd be, it'd be, it'd be, just be fun to come to the style guy and be like yeah this is this is a place to be
0: nice tesla what do you think about the no writing ui like ha- having it as a separate package versus having it sort of all internal and Uh, private and not like published as an elm package
1: i like that it's public i think it raises the bar for documentation and api design to know that other people on the internet might look at it and it makes me feel like more part of the community to be sharing real examples from a large code base of of how a component might work
2: let's compromise them since you like since you like public components and you lo- you love the code quality increase that comes with that you can put all the all the monolith components into nordic ui and then we'll, then we'll we'll have one one uh, place for for our components
1: yeah you know i i did do a lot of them i moved a lot of them but then there's still that step of updating the old components that are used in the monolith not in the style guide and it feels like we're a little bit behind on that. So then I started working on that and stopped moving stuff over. There's always so much to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but if, if I could wave a magic wand for unification and standardization, I absolutely would. Like moving the, the monolith style guide examples into Noradink UI would we'll do that in a second. And having those components be extracted in a Noradink UI the, the actually reused components, at least extracted and moved to Nordic UI would do that really quickly. And then also having all the consumers of the shared components be on the most recent and up-to-date version. That would be awesome.
0: Nice. Okay, so putting all of that together that we've just talked about, let's just sort of wrap up the discussion with just some thoughts on like, what makes a good style guide? What makes a bad style guide? Like, what are some things to aim for? What are some things to avoid? Your thoughts.
2: It's good to have a wide variety of components that serve that serve you know your your main needs of, of building a site of building features. You want those you want them to be demonstrated so you can play around with them on the in the style guide. You can see their different states. You can see how they work. Yeah, what else?
1: I think it's important that everything be very clear. Like the API should be clear from the style guide. The different options should be clear from the style guide. So not just What does the component look like in a state? But how do I get the component into that state?
0: So interactive style guides.
1: I think a list could work too. It would just be harder to make it really exhaustive. Interactive is more visually compact for sure. But if you didn't have it interactive and had it as the list version, I think you could do more with visual testing more easily. Like if you wanted to do like uh, Percy screenshot tests or something like that. I think if you had the list version, the tests that you wrote would be simpler and you would have fewer screenshots to manage. So I don't know that interactivity is like mandatory. It's nice for me, I guess.
0: <laughs> Real quick, what, what's Percy?
1: Uh, it's a testing tool that takes a screenshot of your application in a particular state and then compares it to previously taken screenshots and then does visual diffing and tells you if there's a change helpful for catching visual regressions before they go out.
2: Yeah. And I think it's, I think it's nice to have shared styles as much as you can. But one thing I like about our style guide, our Elm style guide is that though it could, though it could do more uh, sharing of styles between uh, various things it also doesn't entangle things so much that you can like end up having regressions across across multiple components or across the site. Like our old our old SAS styles. There's like includes within includes within includes within includes like you, you can it's just you can just open up six different SAS styles trying to find the original source of of where these styles came from. And so you can just like totally blow up your your styles by by making one change so i like i like that shared styles are good but modularity is also good so striking a balance between those those things
0: awesome all right let's uh let's wrap up with some picks real quick i'll uh, I'll, I'll kick it off so today's pick is pretty narrow in the sense that it's for people who are learning guitar or like want to guitar better so i i sort of picked up guitar after many years of not doing anything with it over the pandemic and got really into it, TroyGrady.com is this guy who takes this really interesting kind of scientific a- approach to learning how to do different picking styles. So basically the setup he's got is he mounts a high-speed camera or now he's got something where you can put a smartphone on on the neck of the guitar so you can take high-speed video of your picking motion and he basically went to like lots of different famous guitarists who are really, really good at picking like really fast at different styles and stuff and just recorded all this high speed video so you can watch in sort of slow motion and see exactly what they're doing when they hit the strings. And he's got these really cool tutorials that sort of like break down like how these things are, these different techniques make certain like playing certain things possible that seem like totally unapproachable if you're trying to do them the obvious way. But if you do these kind of counterintuitive techniques that these people have developed, that certain things uh, become possible and, and in some cases even easy. Really, really cool. Highly recommended if you're interested in guitar or I guess like stringed instruments that use a plectrum in general. So that's uh, that's my one pick for this week.
2: My pick is a podcast called the History of English Podcast. Nice. It's, it's about the history of English and if you like history or English or languages in general or etymology, it's just a fascinating tour through the ages and I always enjoy history that tells that tells a story of how things came to be of, of how of why things are the way they are and so throughout every episode you 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 hear things the podcaster reveals like oh so that's why we say that or that's where that came from and so it's just it's just continually, uh, illuminating like oh wow i i I never thought about like the fact that i say that but it goes all the way back to the romans how fascinating so i recommend the history of english podcast for my pick
0: nice do they get into bob's your uncle i've always wondered where that one came from
2: you know i i'm i'm on episode 40 of 140 so um
0: okay (laughs) well yeah we'll circle back about that later all right tessa
1: I guess this is more of a recommendation than a pick, but I really recommend I really recommend propagating plants in water. I mean, not every plant since that wouldn't work for every plant, but it's so fun to see roots develop and it just increases my appreciation at least for life, I guess, for yeah.
2: My girlfriend puts puts random clippings into into wine glasses, and it's just like, "Whoa, look at it go!"
1: Exactly. It's like, man, what an amazing world we live in. Look at these I've things I've Never going. heard of
0: this. I'll have to. I have to look up. Look it up. That sounds really cool. Awesome. All right, that'll wrap it up for this week. Tessa, Ben, thank you so much for coming on and talking all about style guides. This is really cool.
2: Thanks for having me. Thank you. Bye.